John Ortberg tells a story about a CEO who had taken a new job, and the outgoing CEO, the guy he was replacing, gets him in there for a meeting and, and says to him, he says, sometimes you're, you're going to make wrong choices. You will. It's nothing against you. It's just this job. There's a lot of decisions that you have to make, and it's a, it's a, it's a big company, and you're going to mess up. You're going to make the wrong choice. And he says, and when that happens, he says, I've done something to help you out. I've prepared three envelopes for you. And I've left them in the, in the top uh, drawer of the desk there. So don't look at them early, but the first time you, you screw up, the first time you mess up, you, you get out and look at open envelope number one. It's marked on there number one. The second time you mess up number two, and the third time you blow it open number three, you know. So for the first few months, the guy's in. It's a honeymoon period. Everything goes fine. And then the CEO makes his first uh, serious mistake, and, and he's in trouble, and there's heat on him. And he goes to the drawer, and he opens up envelope number one. And the message reads, it says, blame me. That's all it says on it in there. So he does. He says, this is the old CEO's fault. He made these mistakes. I inherited these problems from him. It's, you know, uh, plays a presidential game, you know. And, and everybody says, well, okay, that, that makes sense. That uh, there's, he, can't fig- he can't be responsible for everything. Some of it's legacy stuff, and it works out pretty well. So things go on fine for a while, period of months, maybe a year or two, and, and then he makes a second big mistake. So he goes to the drawer and he opens up envelope number two, and this time he reads, blame the board. So, and, and so he does. He says, you know, it's the board's fault. Uh, this board is, is a dysfunctional mess. I didn't choose these guys. I, wasn't, I didn't get a vote on their appointment. It's the board that I inherited. Uh, it's really, it's really a, a, a replay of, of uh, envelope number one. He's blaming the old guy. But he says the board. He says, they're the problem. You give me some time when I got all my guys on the board and things will be smooth. And everybody says, okay, we'll give you that. That makes a little bit of sense. Uh, enough sense where you can keep your job. So things go fine for a while longer, and eventually he makes his, his third big mistake. So he goes to the drawer, and he opens, envelope, uh, opens up envelope number three, and the message just says, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> you know, today is the first Sunday in January. My last Sunday as pastor here is the last Sunday in January. And soon somebody else will be up here doing this most every Sunday. Gene's going to take over in the short term, and likely he will have occasion to say, and probably with some justification, well, Derek didn't tell me about this. Derek may have done it that way, but I think this way is better, and so we're not going to do it that way. You know, all this kind of stuff. And, and Oh, ten envelopes. And, you know, and that, that's fine. And after Gene, you'll have to choose, you'll have chosen another guy to do what I do. And likely some of you will like some things about him better than you like some things about me. Possibly... Some of you will like him less than you like me. And he too will be free and and almost certainly somewhat justified to blame some of his problems on my flaws and failures. And and that's fine too. Now, I don't want to hear about any of this, uh, mind you, when the time comes, but I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. And you know, my legacy, how my tenure as pastor here is remembered, is, is pretty well set. After nearly 15 years as a preacher here, uh, I'm not going to change anybody's mind about me overnight. So when I was planning what my last sermon series was going to be, I realized that I didn't really have time to to break new ground, as it were, to to patch up any mistakes that I've made. In a way, I'm a bit of a lame duck, and, and that's fine. So with these, I, I said, Gene was reminding some guys that there was, we have an elders meeting on Thursday night. And I said, do I have to come? And Gene says, oh, I think so. And Todd says, do you want a paycheck? <laughs> so uh, 
I'm not that much of a lame duck, so uh, apparently. So with these things in mind, I asked myself, what should I do with my last four Sundays here? And I spent a few days the other week mulling it over and reading things that might point me in a good direction. Eventually, I came across an article on a a Christianity Today affiliated website called Preaching as Reminding. And it's a longish article, but the main point was that sometimes the job of the preacher is simply to remind people of what they already understand, what they already believe, and what they are attempting to obey. And so in January, I'm going to hit on some subjects I have probably spoken about or taught on in the past, and they are still pretty much foremost in my mind. Maybe they won't be new to you, or maybe they won't seem all that important, but I'm going to do my best to make my case of why I believe they should be emphasized before I go. Now, today's message is written in a bulletin as called, It's Not About Heaven and Hell, but maybe... A better way to ask or to broach the subject is just to ask this question that a fellow named Chuck Mayer asked in an article I came across. And his, the title of his article and the question he asked and tries to answer in it is, if heaven wasn't real, would you still follow Jesus? Do you ever think about it that way? Let's say you consider yourself a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a believer, and hypothetically you know or let's say you strongly suspect because we can't know these things, you suspect that maybe heaven is not going to be waiting for you when you die. Well, if that's the case, do you still follow Jesus? Or do you say, well, heck with that, I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, we cannot know this, so listen to how Mayer lays it out. He says, if we take the message, message of Jesus seriously, we are faced with choosing a life full of dying to our own wants and needs and desires and living a life of self-sacrifice and of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We are to be the voice of the voiceless, be revolutionaries, dedicated to the upside-down, last-shall-be-first-and-first-shall-be-last kingdom that Jesus taught. Now, what I think this question is saying is this. If we get to the end of our lives and find out that this is all that there is, that ultimately when we die, we return to dirt and stay dirt, would our lives have been wasted? Or would we still be able to say that the way Jesus taught was the best possible way to live and our lives had deeper meaning than the shallow pursuit of vain pleasures? I think we all recognize that the lifestyles of the rich and famous ultimately leave much to be desired, that pursuing pleasure for its own sake is pointless. Now, he goes on and and gives more to think about, but his question, if heaven wasn't real, would you still follow Jesus? It gets to the heart of, of a problem that I see us get tangled up in all the time. See, in my experience, we quite often understand Jesus mainly as a, a means to an end. And that end, of course, is this thing we call heaven. And we preachers usually make the point that after you die, you're going to go one of two places, Right? Heaven is the good, pleasant place. That's where the narrow, difficult road takes you. And hopefully we don't say more than we know about heaven, nor portray it in a, in a cartoonish way as the, uh, you know, someplace where we all float on clouds playing harps all day. That version of heaven sounds, sounds dull to me. It sounds boring even. And I think the hints that we are given about heaven in Scripture suggest that it, it won't be completely unfamiliar to the life we know now, but it's still going to be way better and unknown in a great many ways. Anyway, we say heaven is good, hell is bad. We say you're a sinner. We say we all are sinners. And so without Jesus in your life, you are bound for hell. Choose Jesus, you go to heaven, or don't invite him into your life and take your chances with likely heading in the other direction. 
Now, this is not altogether wrong, obviously, but it misses a larger point, which I'm, I'm really going to get to later. Let me give you an example of what this understanding of, of Jesus leads to. Something that has happened many times over the years is that a family comes into church a few times, and they've got some kids. Maybe the kids are 10, 12, 14, 16 years old. And they believe in God, as family does, and they believe that the way to God goes through Jesus, as the Bible makes very clear. <clears throat> so the parent will come up and say to me, well, I want or, or we need to, to get the kids baptized. And, and when can we do that, they say. And they're almost always surprised when I reply with another question. I'll usually say something like, well, let me ask you this. Have your children told you that they want to get baptized? See, my, my response is essentially to, to politely reject the premise of the question because my reason is Jesus is not a spiritual equivalent of an immunization that you have administered to your kid, children, so they can then go to public school. You don't decide for someone else that Jesus is the way for them. You decide for yourself. Jesus even warns that we're not to take on that decision lightly, that we're supposed to count the cost, he says. See, Jesus is not a hoop that we have to jump through to get the prize when our lives are over. Jesus is not just a means to an end, an inoculation against sin that will allow you to attend heaven when the time is right. That's not how the Jesus thing works. Jesus is the prize, you see. He is the end, and not just a means to that end. The truth is, when Jesus approached people, he didn't focus on heaven and hell. And now it's true and, and, and think about the calling of the first followers of Jesus. Matthew 4.18 is pretty typical. It says, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. They were commercial fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once, and they followed him. A little farther up the shore, we saw, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing nets. And he called them to come too, and they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Mark 1 tells a very similar story about these same fellows, as does Luke chapter 5. Jesus doesn't approach Peter, James, and John and the rest of them with any kind of a, a turn or burn message, you know. He gives them an aspirational message. He wants them to aspire to something. He says, come, follow me, be my disciple, learn from me, and I'll give you a job that is much more significant than fishing for mere fish. Now, that's no, no offense, Andrew Bartoldus, the fisherman in the congregation here, or Wilburn who spent his life doing that. But Jesus said, basically saying, fishing's fine, but you come follow me, and you're going to be fishing for people. Time and again in the Gospels, we see Jesus approach people who need God, not with any kind of talk about you know, eternal punishment or even eternal reward, but with talk of, of purpose, of, of redemption, of meaning in life and, and freedom from slavery to sin. His message is you don't have to be bound by your sinful nature. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You can be free. You can know the truth. The truth will set you free. In Luke 19, Jesus sees the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the wee little man we used to sing about, speaking of Pomeroy, First Christian Church. And he does say, and does, Jesus says to him, he sees him, he's up there in a sycamore tree, and does Jesus say to him, Zacchaeus, 
Turn from your wicked ways or you're going to spend eternity burning in hell? No. He says, come down from that tree because I am having lunch at your house today. You see, the very fact that this esteemed, popular, famous rabbi would acknowledge him in public, much less eat at his table, because he was a tax collector and he was hated and, and by so many people as a, as a sellout, a guy who sold out his own countrymen to make a buck, that was enough of a catalyst to kickstart Zacchaeus' conversion process. In John 4, Jesus is resting beside this well in Samaria. And he says to this woman, this woman was a total stranger, she was a woman who was not his relative. He wouldn't, a Jewish man wouldn't talk to a woman out in, in public like that. And plus, she was one of the Samaritans too. And they were, they were hated. The Jews were racist against the Samaritans, basically. And he says, lady, will you please give me a drink of water? And she's surprised that he talked to her. But the conversation goes in a couple of interesting directions there. And eventually Jesus says, well, maybe you should go get your husband so we can talk some more. I'm not married, she says. She says, I know you're not married. In fact, I know that you've been divorced five times and that you are not married to the guy that you're living with right now. See, he brings up a shameful thing. At least it was in that culture. Yet he doesn't threaten her with hellfire or even tisk tisk at her situation. He just states it matter-of-factly and he continues in his efforts to help her to wake up, spiritually speaking. Now, if you sit down, you go home tonight, go home today, and you sit down, you thumb through the Gospels, do a quick survey by looking at this, just the section headings there. You're going to find all sorts of stories where Jesus approached sinful people. But I doubt you'll find anything resembling him being judgmental, at least in the way that Christians are so often thought of as being in America today. See, with Jesus, there, was no, there were no snide, under-his-breath comments about their, their lack of moral uprightness. There was no, well, that's what happens when you're promiscuous or lazy or you like to drink or you gamble. Yes, Jesus was often very frank about, uh, with people about their sins and he, he called on them to repent, but there was no spiritual browbeating and we have no record of any person who was classed as a sinner going away and feeling that Jesus had tried to guilt them into the kingdom of God. Now, it's true that Jesus did often speak about judgment and condemnation. But if you look, I think you'll find that most of the time he reserved that kind of language for those in authority, those who were rich, those who held power over the regular people, and those who considered themselves to, to be close to God already. Yes, Jesus did talk about two outcomes, eternal reward and outer darkness, paradise and eternal punishment, but he used that kind of language. When he did, he was talking mainly to people who already knew such things or should have known such things. People who shouldn't have to have been told. And yet very often he seemed to be warning the, the good, the religious people of his day that maybe their salvation just wasn't as much of a done deal as they assumed it was. Probably the clearest example is found in Matthew 23. Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, Jesus says, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. And on and on Jesus went. Warning after warning for the religious leaders, 
the rich, the powerful, and the indifferent. And I'm confident that if you did a formal survey of the gospel, you'd find that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for those who thought of themselves as good, godly people. But for the riffraff that those people looked down upon, Jesus had only words of comfort, encouragement, and words of aspiration. He invited people to be a part of God's kingdom, to be a part of God's family. They were on the outside. Jesus said, no, you can be with me. You can be part of the kingdom, part of God's family. You can start really living right now, Jesus said. Over 19 years ago, when Emily was just a baby, and I was a a younger man with hair on my head and not much experience as a preacher, I remember that one Saturday, we all, the whole family, went and attended the birthday party of a little girl whose family was in a church that we served there in Gallup, New Mexico. She was five, maybe six years old. And her mother was there. Her grandparents were there. Other family members, friends. It was one of those kind of deals. And we were visiting with the little girl's mother and her grandmother. And the grandma, a lady by the name of Betty Bellevue, who's gone to her reward, who, who had many very positive qualities. This story doesn't reflect too well on her, but uh, she was a, she was a, a, a true... Uh, a follower of Christ. She pointed to her daughter's pack of cigarettes and her lighter that were there on this. We were sitting on a retaining wall outside and her daughter was a smoker and had her, you know, the lighter tucked into the cellophane around the cigarette pack there and they were sitting nearby and she pointed those and she said, now Derek, there's something I wish you'd spend some time preaching against. And I laughed a bit and I said, oh Betty, I said, those won't send you to hell. I said, maybe you'll go to heaven a bit faster But smoking doesn't mean you're not saved. And my reasoning behind approaching it that way was, you know, I've never met a smoker who particularly wanted to be a smoker. So how would me talking about it help them kick their habit? It's not like anybody who smokes is waiting for me or someone else to to tell them that it's bad for them. And if I make something like that my business, where does it end? What about the things that I do that aren't particularly good for me? Well, you know, Derek, bacon's not exactly a health food. Well, you go there, you've gone to meddling, haven't you? Do you see where I'm going here? My point is, if we don't police ourselves in this, we all have a tendency to reduce the message of the gospel to shape up and accept Jesus and go to heaven or, or reject him and stay in your bad habits and burn in hell. And our message becomes more about behavior modification instead of about following Jesus. We should be into soul modification, not behavior modification. However, behavior modification or, or, or heaven and hell, just, you know, like it's a simple choice, is not only not a good summary of the gospel message, it's just not going to get the job done. How many people who are not followers of Jesus do you know who are just sitting around waiting for someone to tell them that if they don't get their dose of religion by going through the motions of accepting Christ, then they're not going to heaven? Oh, I didn't know. Everybody knows that in this culture. Many of them either don't believe that to be true or they're just refusing to think about it in those terms. They're rejecting the premise. So simply laying out heaven and hell for someone or or reducing the gospel to do this but don't do that, that's just not going to cut it. It's not going to get the job done. What's more, it does not seem to be the approach that Jesus took with people, the people that most needed to hear his message. The people who really need Jesus, and yes, I know we all need Jesus, but you know what I'm talking about. Those who most need to hear about the transforming power of the gospel 
and about how, what God's love can accomplish in a person's life, they don't need us frowning at their language that they use or the choice of, their choice of revealing attire. They don't need us pointing out that too much alcohol is dangerous, that lottery tickets are a tax on people who are bad at math, or that having too much fun can lead to dancing or something like that. They don't need us to threaten them with hell or even to promise them that, that we really, more than we really know about heaven. No, instead of our, our head-shaking disapproval and our obsession about the things that they do, they need us for us to show them that there is a better way than just existing and, and, and getting by until the next weekend or the next party or the next high or the next hunting season or the next fishing trip or the next visit to the outlet mall for some retail therapy. Or the soup, next Super Bowl. Is there a Super Bowl this month? Or is it early next month? They need us to show them that when you join up with Jesus, life takes on meaning. That things change for the better. And you really do uh, get the best out of life when you're not just living it for yourself anymore. They need us to show them that we'll be there for them, that we really do want the best for them, and that we're not just working some angle that's eventually going to pay out big for us. Now listen, I'm counting on eternal life, and I most definitely want to avoid whatever punishment is in the opposite side of the equation, but we're not supposed to be mercenaries or people who are only doing the right thing for hope of gain or fear of punishment. We're supposed to follow Jesus because we love God, because we're grateful, because we want others to know how great life can be when you stop making it all about you. See, Jesus hooked Peter with this promise that from that point on, he was going to catch people, not fish. Again, no offense to the fishermen. But Jesus said, hey, from now on, buddy, the stakes are going to be much higher. You're going to get some amazing stuff done. You're going to catch people and not fish. Now, I aspire to be motivated by that kind of challenge. And, you know, I think you should too. I think we all should. It's not just about, well, I know Jesus, so I'm going to heaven, so check, I got that off. Faith is a part of my life. Faith is a big part of my life. No, Life should be a big part of your faith, in a sense. It's not just about going to heaven and avoiding hell. It's not about behavior modification. It's about joining Jesus in his life. We say, oh, you've got to ask Jesus into your heart. You know what? Our, our hearts are small and tiny and consumed with us. Jesus asks us into his life. We, we, we get saved, and we're saved at, at that point. We don't split hairs and say, well, someday when I die, instead of going on the day of judgment, instead of going to hell where I deserve to go because of my sins, at that point I'll be saved, I'll go to heaven. That's not how it works. You sign up with Jesus. And, you know, Christopher will say that when Christopher Lapel in Cambodia, he talks, when he talks about the Khmer Rouge, and that's how he translates in English, and I think maybe their language has it better. He says, talks about people, they say, the Cambodians say, I'm going to go with Jesus. That's, that's a better explanation than, well, I got saved. Or I determined at that point that I was going to sign up on Jesus, and so I got my inoculation against sin, and so I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven instead. I'm going to go with Jesus. 
starts right now. And it extends towards eternity, but that's not the main motivation. Like I said, I want to be motivated by, by that kind of challenge, by more than just, okay, you've got it covered. You're good to go now. You just live your life. You, 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 you come to church at least some of the time. You pay your tithes and your offerings. You try to be a good person, a good neighbor, and stuff like that. You say, oh, Jesus is part of my life. He's a very important part of my life, and, and, uh, and, and I watch Duck Dynasty and everything like that. So uh, I'm, I'm good to go. No. My hope would be that everyone who here, well, that everyone, period, but especially people that I have influence over and have had for many years up here, would be the kind of people who would say, it's not about going to heaven. It's about going with Jesus. It's about being part. And it's about being in his life and following him with everything and not just tacking Jesus on to an otherwise comfortable middle-class American life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we do look forward to the reward to the place that you've been preparing for us. We do want to lay up treasures for the next life, and yet we know that from the moment that we decided to go with your son Jesus, we have been in your kingdom. We've been part of it. We've been your children, your family, your subjects. And we, in our best moments, we want to follow you because we love you. We want to do what you want to do just because that makes you happy and what makes you happy makes us happy. Help us to have more of those best moments. To be motivated by love, by positivity, by, by the desire to reflect you well in all things and not just consumed by a worry over having enough, being good enough to get to heaven or sneaking in by the skin of our teeth. Help us to not be fixated on, 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 the, on salvation as a, as a debit credit accounting process, but to live for you with everything we have and to communicate how great life can be when we do that to others. Help us all in this where we're at, because we're all in different places, Father. This I ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? Let's continue to worship and get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning.